0: Yeah, so last week if you were here, uh, we got to take a little break from our series in the Gospel of Matthew and hear from our sister church, Soma Fuchu. Um, So really encourage you guys, go back, listen to that if you didn't get a chance, if you weren't here. And also, if you want to learn more about what we're doing and how you can support Soma Fuchu, there's some information at the Connect Desk out in the lobby that you can pick up afterwards. Um, But yeah, strongly encourage you, great stuff happening there. And um, yeah, we're really becoming family with them, even though we're so far apart. But this week, we're going to dive back in. Uh, We're going to dive back into the Gospel of Matthew, to following uh, this account of Jesus' life and his work and his ministry. Uh, So we're going to be in Matthew 15, right at the end. uh, And we find Jesus on the move again. He's been on the move a lot the past few chapters. Uh, Two weeks ago, Andrew took us through his encounter with this Canaanite woman. Um, who the disciples tried to push away, uh, but Jesus, because of her great faith, grants her request, and then he moves on again. Uh, And we're moving on to the feeding of the 4,000. A classic story. Uh, It's actually the second time that this type of story has happened. About a month or so ago in our time, um, in Matthew 14, Andrew took us through the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to see it again. Uh, This miraculous blessing of large crowds Uh, And while these stories are super similar, and sometimes you're like, oh, why don't we just skip this one? We did it a while ago. There's actually some stark differences that I'm going to highlight this morning uh, that really speak to the point that I want to make and and that Jesus brought to my attention as I read through this. But the main point today, the big idea, the only thing you need to pay attention to is this call for us to live in such a way that we need Jesus every day. And that's what I want to keep coming back to I want us to walk away from this morning thinking about how we are going to rearrange our lives to force us to be more dependent on Jesus. So hopefully that's a little bit scary. Um, It was challenging to me as I thought through it this week. Uh, So let's pray for us, and then we'll uh, dive into the text. Yeah, Jesus, thank you for this space um, that we've really got to come to and carve out to honor you, to give you glory Uh, to let your spirit speak into our hearts so father i pray that as we go through your word today uh, that it'll come alive that your spirit will actively pushed into our minds into our hearts uh, so that we can leave from here challenged encouraged hopeful uh, for the work that you're going to do with us amen so open up your bibles if you have one there's a bunch up on the table here those are a gift to you if you want to take one or want to give one to somebody It'll be on the screen, pull up your Bible phone app, get off Facebook, um, and we're going to dive in. I'm going to read the whole section. So we're going to be 15, 29 to 39. It's one big story, so let's read it out like one big story. Uh, I'm going to read from here because it's bigger. Um, Jesus left there and went along <clears throat> the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And laid them at his feet. He healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Megiddo. So let's spend a little time unpacking this story together. Uh, it's really important, you know, we sit here, we listen, but to get into these stories, to feel them a little more instead of just glossing over them as we read them. So let's go line by line, as we like to do here at West Village. It's back in 29, Jesus left there. Well, notice this theme right now, right? He's always on the move. Uh, hopefully you guys have been picking up on this and all these little stories. It always kind of starts with Jesus left there or Jesus went to this place. He's always on the move right now because the Pharisees, who he keeps coming into conflict with, uh, are kind of pursuing him. They're looking for opportunities to trap him. And, and Jesus recognizes this. He recognizes it's not quite time uh, to put the final plan into motion, if you will, to really head towards the cross. Uh, and so he actively is trying to go to places Just avoid the Pharisees, avoid some of that conflict, have some more time for ministry and teaching. He's just always on the move uh, to avoid the trapping of the Pharisees, even though they follow him around all the time. And he's always on the move to mountainsides. Like, we see this often. It's a theme throughout Matthew, from the Sermon on the Mount to Jesus getting away. Uh, He's constantly... Jesus loves mountains. They're great. We all love mountains. That's why we live in BC. Um, And they serve this both practical and really spiritual purpose uh, within the Bible. So practical, it's like a natural amphitheater, right? If you're going to teach large crowds of people, we do it backwards here. Um, usually I should be at the top and you guys should all be looking at me, but that's only for Jesus. So it's probably better for my pride that I'm down here. Um, but it serves that kind of practical amphitheater. Like Jesus has a stage to talk to, minister, and let his voice be known. But it's also this deep spiritual purpose. If you're familiar with the broader story, God's story in the Bible, um, Great figures uh, all throughout Jewish history, about throughout the Old Testament, have mountaintop experiences, right? Where they hear from God, they bring God's word to people. Moses is the most, one of the most famous ones where he brings God's commandments down from the mountain. And so for the people that Jesus is teaching to and preaching to, this imagery is really important. It, it affirms his, his story, what he's telling them, his power, his authority, his godhood to them. Uh, and so it's, we can't miss these little details that there's a great thing going on here and the mountain's part of that. Um, so who comes? Jesus gets away, he goes to the mountainside looking for a little peace and quiet, but great crowds come. They follow him. Doesn't matter how much he keeps moving on. People are drawn to him. And specifically broken people are drawn to him. People in great need are drawn to him. And we really need to appreciate the effort of the crowd here, um, that, that they've gone to great lengths. Like, look at the type of people that come to him, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. These people have a hard time leaving their spaces, their comfort zones. You know, if you can't walk, if you're crippled, if you're blind, if you're mute, if you're deaf, moving from a city into the country is a daunting task. It's scary. There's no GPS. There's nothing to help you. There's no kind of safety nets outside of your family and who comes alongside you and they move out into the wilderness up a mountain. And they go to great lengths to meet Jesus. With great patience. There's 4,000 people, 4,000 men plus their families. It could be a, like we're talking 10, 12,000 people if everybody has four kids like everybody in West Village does. Like it's a lot of people. But they must. They must do this. Because they get there, they're laid at the feet of Jesus, and He heals them. He makes these lowly people whole. They come, they lie down, they take that posture of humility, and He makes them whole. And they believe deeply that He could overcome anything, and that He could heal them. And they were amazed. People were amazed. And how could you not be? Take a sec, step back. Um, I love doing this this week. I'm putting myself in the story, right? Imagine being that person that can't see or can't walk or is just crippled by pain and suffering. And your life is just agony. You're kind of an outcast of society. You can't contribute, much. You always must be supported by others. Um, you know, you're kind of stuck in your own little block, your own little world. Uh, but you hear this message, you hear this Jesus guy. You know he's close, but he's just left town. You've got to go follow him. Finally, you get to the mountainside. There's all these other people there, and you're like, oh, I'll get in line. I'll wait. I'll stand in line. It says they're there for three days as Jesus heals them. They sit there, and they patiently wait, and you get closer and closer and closer to the front of the line. Eventually, you get to see Jesus. He's just right there. Just can't take your eyes off him. You hear people praising and shouting as, as they're healed and as this amazing act happens again and again and again. And finally your turn comes. Can't help but just lay down in front of Jesus. You're exhausted. You're at the end of yourself. Your body's riddled with pain and disease. And you just say, Lord, I believe heal me he does and the crowd cheers and they praise him you stand up your sight is clear you can hear you can talk you're free of pain you go get to join this vast multitude that just experienced jesus's power how could they not you know it says they praise the god of israel how could they not The first thing that hit me as I read this story this week is we can't let the extraordinary things we read in the Bible become ordinary. can't just glaze over this story and look for the three things that I need to apply to my life. Sometimes we just need to sit and be like the crowd and praise him for what he did. So hopefully that helps us just start to put ourselves in the mindset of the crowd. Get into this story, feel it, live it, um, be moved by it and appreciate worse, the great effort they went to and then the great humility humility that they come to Jesus with. Right? They were patient, they weren't demanding, they waited and waited and waited to get a taste of Jesus and his power and his kingdom and participate in that. They risk a lot, right? For some of these people, they might not be able to make it back to where they live, Without the power of Jesus, right? They could literally be dying in the wilderness because so they run out of food. There's no McDonald's. There's no skip the dishes. They're stuck out there. They can't just. They could be on the side of the road, and the crowd will pass them by unless Jesus shows up, heals them, and provides for them, as we'll see later on. So that's the crowd. That's who we see in the first part of this story. Second part, verse 32 to 34, we see a different, we see a different audience. A different character in this story, it's, uh, it's Jesus and his disciples. So let's look at this from verse 32. So he calls his disciples to him. In the midst of these great crowd, he follow, calls his followers. They're his students. They've been living with him faithfully uh, over a long period of time. He's been growing them and maturing them and discipling them and teaching them. Uh, and, and we know that Jesus has great power in and him of himself. And he wants the disciples, to partake in this, though. He wants his disciples to help him. And I really encourage you, go back and listen to Andrew's sermon on Feeding the 5,000, because it really shows the proper response of helping Jesus and giving to Jesus uh, from the disciples. Um, They got this right the first time. Uh, And that story really highlights how Jesus takes our meager things and makes much of them. Uh, out of this posture of humility and faithfulness. So go back, it's on our website. It's probably just entitled Feeding the 5,000 because we're really creative with titles around here. Um, But this story, the response is different. It highlights this heart posture that I'm going to get into later on. Um, So just mark that though. Mark that in your brain that there's something different going on here with the disciples. Uh, But let's get distracted by Jesus for a second because that's a really good thing to be distracted by. Uh, This is probably my favorite part of this this whole section. It's where Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. I have compassion for these people. Think of the, just the beautiful picture of the Lord, the God of the universe who became a man for us and so he could have compassion for us. So he could empathize with us, and know what's going on with us. He understands what it's like to be human. He understands what it's like to be hungry and tired and dirty and sore. And at the end of yourself, and he has compassion on them. This picture was just so sweet um, that I kept coming back to it as I went through my notes. i like, oh, I just want to stop here. Uh, I just want to rest here. Rest in this picture of Jesus. And I want us to just feel that. Feel that compassion that he knows you know. It may not be starving on the side of a mountain, but he knows your difficulties. He knows your struggles and your risks. He has compassion on you. He wants what's best for you in this moment. Um, and he knows what's best for you. It's a really sweet picture. Back to the disciples. So Jesus says, I have compassion on them. What are we going to do for them? We can't just send them away hungry. they could collapse. They could die. They could be left on the side of the road. His disciples answered, Where could you get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? A little short-sighted considering this. They know exactly where you could get the bread from. All throughout chapter 15, we actually don't see the best from the disciples. This is the You know, it's been happening in every story. In the first story, Jesus calls them dull. Uh, I don't know if my mom's here, but she's like, Jesus didn't say that, that's mean. Um, Like, he did. He's a little harsh sometimes. Only with people that say they follow him, though. Uh, And the Pharisees, they get the worst of it. But in the second story, uh, the disciples, there's this lady crying out for help, and they're like, she's annoying. Get rid of her. Her shrill cries bother me. Uh, And Jesus goes on to, to chastise them again, and eventually heal her faithfully. And then we have this third story, feeding of the 4,000. They said, Jesus, how could you possibly do this? How could you possibly get this done? Uh, I think I have this quote up on the screen from a, one of the commentators. I was reading this week, it says, the, despite, the disciples respond with such an incredulous question, indicating that they believe their resources are inadequate. Evidently, their memories are also inadequate or they would recall Jesus' ability to multiply their supplies. This exact same things already happened. They should know better. They're so forgetful. Just a few months ago in the story, Jesus had done the exact same miracle. Uh, But in the face of this daunting situation again, the disciples are looking for a way out instead of turning to Jesus. Uh, But thankfully, thankfully for all of us in this room, We're going to talk about this more later, but uh, Jesus is good and at times he just works despite us or he gives us a second chance because instead of chastising them on the spot, he gives them another opportunity. He says, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asks. They reply, seven loaves and a few fish. That's a big distinction, right? In the feeding of the 5,000, the earlier story, the disciples willingly come and say, Jesus, this is all we have. What can you do with it? And this one Jesus has to prompt them to offer up, to be willing to give, to be willing to have faith that he can do these things. Um, so I'll have a little Bible nerd time for you, because everybody loves a little Bible nerd time. Um, so how do we know that these stories are, you know, only a few months apart, or that they aren't the same story, or all that stuff? Grass. Bible nerd. It's all about the grass. Um, not West Coast grass, like ground grass. Um, so the feeding of the 5,000. This is what commentators and Bible nerds talk about. They're like, oh, it says grass there. Um, but in that story, Jesus asks them to sit down on the grass. Grass comes up in springtime. They don't have watering systems. It's just, you know, the clouds and stuff. So they sit down on the grass. But in this story, they're asked to sit down on the bare ground. And the bare ground happens at the end of summer, dry season, all that fun stuff. So this gives us this little time and place. And the point of this is, not so that you know how grass grows... Uh, but to show them that in the span of a few months, from early spring to late summer, the disciples have forgotten the busyness of life. And you'd think they see Jesus every day, they wouldn't forget. Um, but they'd forgotten how he can provide and give to them. They're in this season of maturity in some ways of trying to figure things out for themselves. On their earlier walk with Jesus... They gave everything to him. As they walk more, they, they think they can figure things out themselves. Part of the human condition. They don't want to force themselves to depend on Jesus. They still want to solve problems themselves. We're going to hit that more later. Let's keep going through the story. Finally, we get to the last part of the story. We've seen the crowds. We've seen the disciples. Um, let's focus on Jesus. This is part three, verse 35 to 39. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Ground, not grass. Bible nerd. Um, but the, the word sitting here is actually the word that I want to draw our attention to. And Not all of us are going to spend hours and days diving into Greek and terms, and that's what Andrew loves to do. Um, but it's actually this picture of sitting is the picture of reclining at a grand feast or at a festival. Um, there's a a luxury to it. Uh, <clears throat> it's like a wedding feast. We're going to recline there. We're going to enjoy it. Uh, we're going to partake of the abundance of the host and the guests. We're going to just have a grand time. And it's a word that invokes this feeling that they're not just kind of lining up and they're going to have a little morsel, but that they're going to come participate in, in a grand feast. It's going to be a celebration. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be fulfilling it really gives this picture uh, that we see later on in the Bible of the grand feast of heaven, right? Heaven is described like a wedding feast, and this kind of invokes that, that this meal with Jesus points towards something that is great and good to come. We miss that so often in this simple little word, sitting on the ground. Get that picture, right? Jesus comes, and the crowd calms. This is a lot of people. They recline on the ground, and they prepare. They've just been healed, Right? Like they are already feeling exuberant. They're hungry. And Jesus says, sit, let's have a feast together. And he gives thanks, this powerful but simple reminder that God is the provider of, and sustainer of all. And he breaks the bread and the fish. And they, the disciples start handling it, handing it out. They still get to participate in it despite their doubt, which is amazing in itself and then they all ate and were satisfied this is not just a snack or a light meal this is ample abundance this is god's fullness and generosity on display they all get to leave that place fully healed with full bellies to go back to their homes and their lives and like i said this is like 8 to 10,000 people from a few loaves and some fish it's truly a miracle we can't forget to stop and be amazed by that. This isn't, you know, our, our little feast of crackers and and juice that we're going to have later on to celebrate communion. Um, this is heartily eating in abundance for people that have been there for three days; their supplies have run out, but Jesus provides. And afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Jesus brings abundance. There are leftovers. Everybody was satisfied and then some. And even though the disciples doubted, they get to partake in this abundance. They get to see it firsthand. They get to participate in this great work of Jesus. That should be encouraging to all of us. So for as a recap the story that we've heard so far this crowd of broken people that come humbly to Jesus to be healed you see this beautiful compassionate picture of Jesus we get this inner workings of the disciples' heart where they doubt they shy away from daunting circumstances finally we get to see this amazing goodness and ample bounty that Jesus provides we get to see the disciples still participating in that. It's a great story. Um, you know, one of the blessings of getting the preach on stuff is you really dive into these things, you chew on them. Um, I was just thanking God. I'm like, yeah, God, I, I would do sermon prep just for myself because <laughs> it's really good. Uh, and it's like a side benefit that I get to share it with you guys. So I hope as we just chewed on that a little bit together that it that it encouraged you, it inspired you, it challenged you. Um, but now I want to look at how we respond to this. How we respond to this picture of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, what he did back then, what he continues to do for us today. Uh, so what does this story mean for us? And, there, and there's really two responses we see in this story. We see the crowds, this broken humility. They approach Jesus trusting him to you know, help them overcome these really hard situations of life, physical ailment, traveling distances, hunger, All these things, their brokenness is fully on display and they approach Jesus with that posture. And then we see the disciples. People walking with Jesus every day, you know, vocally his followers, vocally his you know, they're identified as his disciples, his students. And we see them forgetting and doubting Jesus, even though he's shown over and over again what he can do. Um, may not be a big surprise, but we're going to talk about the disciples and how my guess is most of us in this room have more in common with them than the crowds most days. I, I know I do. And their response is really how could we possibly do this? How could we get this done? And this story really caused me and one of the commentators put it like this. He said, we must never lose sight of a human being's vast capacity for unbelief. We are really good at forgetting and not believing in what Jesus has done for us. And I want to acknowledge that the disciples, this isn't their, always their posture. This is a season in their life. And for us, we have various seasons in our life where we go through these doubts and unbeliefs, and shying away from daunting tasks. As we know, just the past spring, the disciples had faithfully followed Jesus, and their posture had changed. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to recognize that the longer we walk with Jesus, the longer you've been on this journey of being a Christian, of sitting in sermons, of being in community groups, of being in DNA groups, um, you will start to recognize these seasons of doubt in your life, and these areas of doubt in your life. Uh, And we need to be aware of them and we need to take action to to overcome them, uh, to move them from areas of unbelief to belief. So the disciples are trying to avoid a situation that seems undoable. And I want to examine our own lives now. I want to ask some questions of us now that I've asked of myself and I want to ask of you guys. Uh, to see if there are these areas. And I've picked three. There's probably a whole bunch more. Um, but I view everything through my life lens because I'm selfish and sinful. We'll get to that later. Um, so the question is, what do we avoid that allows us to not trust Jesus? Are we, as we go through these, ask yourself, are you in a season of doubt in these areas? It's first of the three. Finances, because we always talk about money around here. Jesus did too, we're in good company. Question, do we build our budgets needing Jesus to show up? Is there a risk taken in them? And do we give so generously to West Village, to others, to people in need, whatever it is, that it hurts a little bit? That there's a risk involved in it we, you know, for, forgo those things that we desire uh, for Jesus' sake. Take that risk. An example of, of there are many families in West Village uh, come to mind that they've decided to be so generous and to live on such a tight shoestring budget. Um, they do this because they need to depend on Jesus at every paycheck then, Right? They need him to show up time and time again. Uh, And they've taken this posture because it allows them to praise him every time he provides. That risk, that daunting task of living tightly actually allows their faith to grow, their relationship with Jesus to become rich and full and active as they are constantly going to him to provide and to show up. So if that's kind of tugging at something in your heart, the question I want to ask us, I want you to ask yourself, is are you, are you in a season of life where you have stopped depending on Jesus and your finances? Could be all of us, could be some of us. Think through that. Think through what you're denying yourself by not relying on Jesus. There's a richness there that we avoid by depending on ourselves and not him. Next area. Call it family planning. Um, do we plan our family size around how much we can handle? I have friends that aren't Christians that go, oh, can never have more than one kid. So this is kind of our culture these days, actually. But do we actually say, no, we're going to have more? I think West Village, we do say we're going to have more. I don't know, everybody has four or five kids. So, um, But do we have that plan saying, I could never do more than one that would take up too much of my time. Too challenging. Maybe we do have a bunch of kids. And we say, okay, here's my schedule. Planning it out like this. Couldn't add another possible thing to it. Because then I wouldn't have enough me time, downtime. There's This is obviously a balancing subject that depends on person. But I find this in myself that I want to say, no, let's uh, say that's our time. Can't have another event at our place. But every time we say yes to that, I don't want to do it. Get to the point of doing it. And it's just this rich moment of Jesus saying, yeah, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for depending on me for energy and strength. Uh, It's awesome. Here's a prickly one. Uh, Do we take our kids and send them to a school we think will be the safest and best for them because we don't want to deal with the garbage they're going to come home with? Or are we willing to maybe put our kids in a school that has the bad kids? Making my life a little more challenging. Maybe a lot more challenging. I'll use myself and my wife, Kirsten, as an example of this one. So we were pretty intentional in this area, Uh, right from the get-go. Maybe me more than her. I always wanted to have four kids. She may have been done after two or three. Um, We're having five, just kidding. Not, not having five, um, but we knew that Jesus would use the chaos of our life and of having that many kids, you know, that close together, they're all two years apart, um, that we would continually have to go to him and he would use that to refine us. Kirsten was writing her testimony out yesterday, her story, um, and she was like, yeah, actually <laughs> that has been one of the most refining things over the past eight years of my life is working through my identity issues with my kids. Um, she thanked me the other day for making her have four kids. Uh, but it was just this, this moment, and I've been reflecting on it a lot lately, of God has used that in amazing ways. Uh, the chaos of that. Like, we get to the end of ourselves often. And it's either yell in frustration or stop and pray. And they probably both happen equally. But it's been such a rich thing. That chaos, that getting to the end of ourselves, that taking on daunting situations uh, with our children. And the same thing happened when we decided where we're gonna send our kids to school. We talked about all the different options and you know, we took the easy one because it's right down the road. But we recognize that sending them into a public school system means they're gonna bring junk home with them. They're gonna get exposed to stuff. And it's scary. We have this conversation almost every week that, oh, Miles is now saying this thing or seeing that thing or he wants to go to this kid's house. Uh, and we need to pray often that God will, one, protect our kids but also that we trust that he is powerful enough to heal them from whatever they're exposed to. Um, and it's this ongoing struggle that we need to go back to Jesus again and again and again um, because he's these things. And so we could have made choices to avoid this chaos. We could have left kids. We could have you know, done different schooling things. Uh, But I firmly believe we would have missed out on this richness of his grace of coming to him in dependence in the midst of these hard things. Um, You can, and Kirsten would speak to this way more than I would if you ever want to talk to her about this, but it's been just amazing growth in her life through this journey. So I encourage you, if you're in the midst of, man, did we have too many kids? Or man, we made the wrong decision here? Or this is really hard. Talk to me, talk to her. Um, But the examination question for us here uh, is, are you in this season of life where your family plan is so dialed in, so to the T, that you can work it out, that you can enact it without Jesus? Is your life so scheduled and planned that you've, you've made it just to the edge of what you can take? I would encourage you to push yourself over the edge so that Jesus can catch you. The third area, mission. This idea that if we say we follow Jesus, the call on us is to go and make disciples who make disciples. To spread the good news of Jesus out and around to all. So what area, what areas of your life are the mission no-go zones for you? I'll be missionaries to my neighbors, my friends and my family, but not my co-workers. Or my co-workers, but I never talk to my neighbors. just want to chill out at home, shut my doors, and hide. What's off-limits for you? What area are you not faithful in obeying that command of making disciples? Where do you fear the consequences more than trust in Jesus to provide Consequences of awkward conversations, potential lost relationships. Uh, personally, as I, I ask myself through these questions, this is the area that, that it really stood out to me that I need to trust more. Uh, I have this habit of being a chameleon. Uh, I just blend in with I, whoever I hang out with. This makes it easy to get along with lots of different groups of people. It actually makes it pretty challenging to talk about Jesus at times. Because yeah, most groups, outside of the groups I hang out with here, don't want to talk about Jesus. Not something that comes up in conversation. And for me, the disbelief is that if I preach the good news, I need to do it so perfectly and just the right way that it'll get in there and bear fruit. But that's wrong. It's God's word. His spirit plants it grows it, does good things with it. So I need to trust that Jesus is the one doing the powerful work of saving people. And I can offer up this good news freely to all. If it changes some relationships, that's okay. So the question we ask our hearts are, are we so comfortable in our relationships that our fear of losing them is greater than our desire to make Jesus known. There's a hundred other areas we could spend all day talking about, places where we don't take risks, but those are the three that stood out to me. Hopefully they resonated with you guys in one way or another. So the question becomes, why do we do this? Why are we so forgetful of the powerful work that Jesus has already done in these areas or that we hear stories of in these areas? You know, we're reminded again and again and again that Jesus is powerful it wants to work in us. It's because we're self-centered sinners. We're just a mess. Look at us. We're a big mess. Uh, and we're just riddled with this disease of sin that makes us want to do things our own way. That makes us think that we know best Jesus cures us from this disease, which is amazing. Uh, but we just return back to those sinful habits again and again. Uh, we forget who Jesus is just like the disciples did. In some ways, we don't even have to feel bad. They literally lived with him for three years, and they forget. Um, We get it way easier. But we have this habit. I don't know if it's churches today. My hunch is it's just Christians throughout the ages of letting Jesus save us from our initial brokenness, right? We come, we're broken, we meet him, we hear that sermon... We interact with that friend and they preach the gospel and it's amazing and I need that and I can't save myself. And then we move on. We mature. We read the Bible more and we're like, okay, I got this. I can figure out the rest on my own. This is the the pattern we see in the disciples in these stories. First feeding story. They come, they offer it all. Second one, they've matured a little bit. They've walked with Jesus a little further. And they say, okay, how are we going to figure this out? We can't figure this out. Jesus prompts them, gives them another opportunity. As humans, we always want to be the heroes of our own story. I know everybody, we have this Gospel Foundations course, and they're all writing their stories this week, and they're all going to share them this afternoon as they get together for Gospel Foundations. Uh, and the number one thing I tell people when they're writing their story is make Jesus the hero. Because we always want to make ourselves, or our spouse, or this church, or that preacher, or this book, we're going to make something else the hero of our story. But Jesus demands that he's the hero. He's the one that saves. He's the one that defeats sin and death. He's the one that makes us whole again. He's the one that heals. He's the one that provides. So how can we trust in Jesus and not ourselves? How can we make this a habit In our lives. I'll go back to my big idea that we started out with. We need to live in such a way that we need Jesus every day. I made it rhyme so that it will stick in your heads. Don't forget it. But we need to build areas in our lives where we need Jesus to show up. It doesn't need to be every area in our life. We can take baby steps here but we need to take these risks that cause Jesus to grow us and mature us, that cause us to lean into that relationship, to be utterly dependent on him. And you know, We need to have that extra kid. We need to start fostering or adopting. We need to let our family plan open up to the point where we need Jesus to show up because we want to depend on him more. We need to give that crazy amount of money away. Buy that person in need a car. Invite someone into your suite for free. Whatever it is, take that risk so that every day you can be reminded to depend on Jesus. Maybe it's as simple as inviting that coworker over for dinner. Maybe it's as simple as hanging out in your front yard instead of your backyard so you can see your neighbors walk the dog. But taking those risks for a mission we all know the things that we avoid. They're trickling up in our minds and our hearts right now. It's the spirit at work. That was my prayer for this morning as I was praying through this. That'll give us one area, just one, that we can take a little more risk in for the sake of getting to know Jesus better. And don't be afraid of failure because we get to live life with the belief that Jesus conquered sin and death. We know the ending to the story. He wins. We get to walk out in that hope. And it's amazing. We know that one day there'll be a place with no more sin or sorrow or pain or death. It's kind of a little picture of what this feeding was like, right? They've just been healed. They've been made whole. And then they're provided for in a feast. And that's a little picture of heaven. We get to live with that picture in our minds. And finally, have hope. Jesus did a great work here, despite the disbelief of the disciples. So if you're feeling guilt or shame because you've been ignoring that area, whatever it is, have hope. Jesus is still pursuing you and asking you to join with him in his work and his mission and his ministry. He wants to do great things. And he will do them despite our unbelief. He wants us to participate though because it's so good for us. It's good for our hearts. It's good to praise him. (sighs) I'm so thankful as I thought through that that he offers us that second chance and the third chance and that fourth chance. Because we're going to need it. We're broken sinners. So let's turn our attention to how the crowds respond. And this is the place I hope that we can all live out of it's a hard place to be at times but I hope we can but they know that Jesus can do great things and they come to him in broken dependence they approach him as sick broken they're just they absolutely need him and they trust that he'll be the one to provide in some ways these people had no way home they exhausted all their resources to get there and Jesus was their only hope. They lie down in front of him. It's from this humble place of brokenness and humility that Jesus makes them whole again. He wants to make us whole again. So we come to him, we face daunting situations, and we say, Jesus, I can't do this. I'm in over my head. I need you to show up, provide, to heal, to let your power be known this is what he wants for all of us he wants us to approach him in humility approach him knowing that he can do great things come to him every day needing his power to live bring every daunting task to your life to him for some of us that's just getting out of bed in the morning I recognize that so those areas that I talked about you're like I can't even think that far just have a hard time getting through my day start there Start there. Bring that daunting task of getting up, getting ready, going to work, whatever it is, to him and say, Jesus, I want to depend on you in this area. I want to see your power so I can give you praise. I'll call the band up as I conclude. So as we close, my encouragement to all of us is to look at our lives and ask, where do we need more risk so that we can have more Jesus? Where do we need more risk so that we can have more Jesus? For those of you in here that know Jesus already, you need to trust that He is powerful enough to overcome your doubt and your fear in those areas. He will provide and is bigger than anything that you can imagine. For those of you that don't know Jesus, that are on this journey with Him, come like the crowd. Lay down your life and ask Him to heal you. He is compassionate. He's good. He knows what's best for you and offers it freely. For all of us, go and live in such a way that you need Jesus every day. Pray for us. Oh, Father, thank you for this great picture of your character, of your compassion, of your goodness. Yeah, I thank you that you know the human condition, the human heart. And that you work with us despite it so many times. So I pray that we go from here, that your spirit will encourage us in one area where we can take that risk so that we can get to know you better. So we can rely on you more fully and see your power at work. Amen. Amen.